0: I read somewhere that that uh, the old British theologian and par excellence preacher Charles Spurgeon was once told that by a member of his church that uh, they had decided to leave and join another church. Evidently, this member was disgruntled for some reason and un- unhappy with Spurgeon and the direction the church was going, and Spurgeon, who um, was witty and sometimes blunt, said to the gentleman, oh, by the way, the, the man said he was going to join a church that was perfect. So Spurgeon said to the man, <clears throat> well, when you find it, please don't join it because you'll ruin it. <laughs> We've arrived at the fifth of our sixth Week study on the first chapters of the book of Acts. And these chapters have inspired us with the story of the church's beginning. We've seen how the church, first of all, waited expectantly for the Holy Spirit. It was neither fretful nor worried about the future or past, but they were expectant. And we learn that that's what we ought to be, expectant. Believing God, believing His promises, believing that He will fulfill His promises, and watching God to show us His ways rather than doing our own ways. That was our first installment, Acts chapter 1. Then, second chapter of Acts, we read about the outpouring of God's Spirit at Pentecost. And we learned that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was a coronation gift For Christ's enthronement in heaven. And we learn that Jesus is still reigning today. He's still powerful today. And He's still giving the gift of the Spirit as heaven's guarantee that we are saved, we are redeemed, we have a place with Him, and that we are His and He is ours. And we can meet every challenge. In Jesus Christ. That was Acts 2. Then Acts chapter 3. Oh, by the way, maybe some of you are still carrying it, or if you're not, you're welcome to get one. It's just a little something. Some people probably think it's stupid, but it has been a reminder for me this little card that I've been carrying, a reminder, a simple slip of paper that reminds me when I feel it, when I sense it in my pocket and pull it out, that that really it's the Spirit's indwelling that creates life. It's the Spirit's indwelling that brings me overcoming power in Jesus Christ so that I can live, so that I can move and I can do life as a follower of Jesus, an overcomer through His power and strength. And that we might do Life and church for his glory and for his honor. So there are still some there if you want to pick one up, a few more left if you like one. Then, Acts chapter 3, we looked at the story of the lame beggar who was healed by God's miraculous power working through Peter. And we learned that God is still healing today and empowering us to be like that lame baker, a witness for him, a witness of the goodness and life-changing power that is ours in Jesus Christ. Then last week, we read about the boldness of Peter and John as they stood before the Jewish authorities, remember, the Sanhedrin, and all the leaders of Jerusalem, and we saw the confidence and the heroic courage that came not from their ability, not from their background, not from their intellect or training or wealth or accomplishments or anything like that, but that courage, that holy boldness came from the same source that we can possess, and that is the Holy Spirit power. And we said that it was a derivative value. Maybe you remember that. That courage that they possessed was a derivative value And it comes because we are assured that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And that's what gives us boldness. That's what gives us courage. He overcame death. He ascended to heaven. He reigns on high. He's ministering for us. And he will give us strength to walk and live for him to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our Lord. And today, on this Thanksgiving Sabbath, we find ourselves at a most interesting place. I figured it would come to this as I made the plans for this series. And you may be a bit surprised that this would be where we would camp on Thanksgiving Sabbath. But thus far, We've seen the miraculous progress of God's church. And in Acts chapter 5, in the account of Ananias and Sapphira, we get a bit of a reality check here at Village Church. The church, yes, even the apostolic church, isn't a society of perfect people. Sometimes we think of it that way. Sometimes we longingly hope that it's that way. And we desire that it would be the same, that perfect way that it was back in the time of the disciples. But things were not flawless back there in those days. And things aren't flawless today. And it won't be flawless as long as I'm here. And as long as you're here too. (laughs) No, the church has never been perfect. It never will be perfect until, as Mr. Koch told us, we gather around that table in heaven. Then we will be perfect in Jesus Christ. Well, we're actually perfect in Him, but flawed here and now. But, you know, um, things weren't perfect back in the days of the disciples. And... um, That does not mean, however, that today we cannot expect a miraculous work in our midst. It happened back in the days of the apostles. God worked miraculously. Even though the church wasn't perfect, God can do the same today. And our narrative that we'll look at today um, gives us reason for pause, I think the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church brings solemn implications. God's kingdom is advanced by miraculous workings in our midst, in and among us. And sin, when it infiltrates, is recognized, called out by name, forsaken, and repented of in God's church. That's what we see. The the early church saw the situation as Paul explained it quite graphically in 1 Corinthians when he said, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy, destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. And that's still the case today. We are God's temple, individually and corporately, together. And no one joins Village Church because they think it's perfect. At least I have n- never had anyone tell me that they're becoming part of Village because they think we're perfect. For all the beauty of this place, for all the beauty of the, the social and spiritual Uh, engagement we can have in this place, there's also disappointment in this place. Thanks to God, we're a good church, but we're not a perfect church. Nor has a church ever been, even when the apostles were alive. But that doesn't mean that we can't strive and hope and pray that the Spirit will take possession of us personally and corporately in the way it did back there in those days. That's what I'm praying for. This world has only witnessed one perfect life. But that does not mean that we could not or should not strive to be so filled with Jesus Christ that our lives reflect this one who became poor for our sakes, that we might be filled with the richness of his goodness. That's my desire and my hope. I love the picture that Ellen White paints for us in that book, Acts of the Apostles. Maybe you've been reading it. Chapter number 7 is the one that goes along with our story today. And this is what she said. When the when in the church of today it is seen that by the power of the Spirit, the members have taken their affections from the things of the world, and that they are willing to make sacrifices in order that their fellow men may hear the gospel, the truths proclaimed will have a powerful influence on believers. Do you get that? You see what she's saying? That when we as followers of Christ are so consumed with him that what we have becomes nothing and what, what he wants for us and for others becomes even more important. Then, then, she says, the truths we proclaim will have a powerful influence. Acts chapter 4 ends with a brief account of this beautiful harmony that existed in God's church there in the time of the apostles. And you can see it in Luke chapter, I mean Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers, it says, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Now think of it, despite the burgeoning growth, despite the fact that thousands of people were coming to Christ day after day, despite all those things, the, the church was united in its devotion to God. There was an emotional bond that that drew people together there was a sense of caring for each other and a commitment to one another such that it was a display of god's goodness they were experiencing the unity for which jesus prayed when he was here on earth when he said in john chapter 17 my prayer is not for them alone talking about his disciples I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. This crowd in the early church, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That was happening right there. The unity and the, and the devotion and the, and the love for each other, the care for each other. That unity that was happening in the church wasn't a uniformity where everybody looked and acted exactly alike. It wasn't an organization where everyone was pushed into the same mold. Rather, it was a unity like Jesus experienced with His Father when He was on earth. A unity that was a sameness of mind and purpose and love and and devotion. And that was a unity that the early church was experiencing. Now, there are things that do separate us. There are things that can be dividers between us, like different points of view, different perspectives, different preferences, different passions. But all of these things are really secondary, secondary issues. We all have different talents. We all have different Passions and, and, uh, but underlying all these things and primary to our commitment to Him is a unity of faith. That's what keeps us together. We're united in our love for God, we're united in, in our devotion to His ways and to following His word. We're united in our calling to share this word with the world. That unites us. And that devotion that we experience to Him expresses itself in generosity. We become generous people. That's what it says in the book of Acts, chapter 4 and verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Isn't that a neat picture? They were one in heart and mind. And they shared everything they had. That wasn't a forced or regulated generosity. There wasn't any such thing as a communal purse directed by explicit guidelines. It was a, a sense of heart devotion moved by the Spirit of God. Chapter 7 in this book, Acts of the, the Acts of the Apostles by Ellen White, identifies the motivation clearly. Look at these words. The liberality on the part of the believers was the result of the outpouring of the Spirit. The outpouring of the Spirit is what created among them this love for one another. It was what propelled the cause of the gospel. And they saw that this cause was much greater than their own, much greater than their own comfort, their own security. And that's what the Spirit of God works in us today. He does the same for us. Members of that church who were property owners liquidated their assets in order to create some uh, liquidity, you might say, uh, of their assets. So that they could be quick to respond in time of need for the poor and the needy among them. They wanted to be fast to help. In Acts chapter 4 33 and 34 it says with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerful at work in them that all that, that there were no needy persons among them. Just think of those last words. No needy people among them. How did that happen? Peter and John's Testimony and the other apostles as they devoted their time and energy to publicly proclaiming the gospel and telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ and the saving grace of God in His Son, Jesus Christ. God powerfully at work among them in sharing their faith with others also resulted in a generosity, a generosity in spirit for the poor among them, so much so that there was no needy person among them. You know, human nature is not that way. Not naturally, anyway. Human nature is every man for himself. Most of us on our own are really not all that generous. On my own, I'm certainly not. Oh, I'm polite on my own. I give to others, but usually it's because I'm influence-peddling. You know, trying to make sure and secure for myself because it's who you know that counts. It's just good personal management, you know. That's the way I do it on my own. I'm not generous on my own. I'm more self-serving than that. But in Christianity, something new broke into the world a true generosity came. And we see it in the early church. It's because they came to know the God who gave His all in unconditional generosity in Christ that they became generous. And that's the same reason I become generous. That's what causes generosity to to grow in my heart. It's not something that I possess. It's something that I have from God. In Jesus Christ, I see that God gave himself. He gave all he could to save me, to help me, to give me life. And as Paul concludes in Romans chapter 8 and some of my favorite verses in the Bible, if he's done that much for me, he's not going to stop at helping me with everything I need. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? That's the kind of God that we serve. A giving God. A God that doesn't withhold anything from us. Nothing that would help us does he withhold. He's given me everything. He's given me health and life and time and talent and family and relationships and a church and And when I return to him one-tenth of the hundred percent that he's given me, it comes not out of obligation. It comes out of a heart that flows in gratitude for what he's done. I recognize that my tenth is a measly tiny bit compared to the generosity that he's given me. God is the greatest Giver there has ever been or ever will be. He gives. He forgives. He restores. He supports. He protects. He supplies. He encourages. And he didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to do that for you and for me. He could have let me die eternally for my own mistakes. But he didn't. He saved me. He saved you. And that's what creates a spirit of generosity in my heart. Nobody, nobody who has come to know God, a God who has been so gracious, can ever be the same again. Nobody. Him for me, him in me, by his spirit, inspires me, encourages me, energizes me to be the same. That's what it's all about. But it's not in order to get. It's because I have in Christ everything. Well, the early church was alive with this spirit, and it worked among them in such generosity And I have to say, I pinch myself when I think I am here at Village Church because you folks are some of the most generous I've ever known in my life. And I just want to say thank you to you. Your generous sacrificial support is spreading God's kingdom through tithes around the world. Millions of dollars come in here and spread to the world advancing God's kingdom. and But you don't stop there. You not only return tithe, you give generously, sacrificially, and your sacrificial support to Village Church is making this place happen in vibrant ministry in our community. Helping our children's Sabbath school, helping in our outreach, helping with our, our health ministry, helping with hundred vital activities. But you don't stop there. Because your extra sacrificial giving toward the 50-year renewal fund is keeping this place in a God-honoring fashion. But you don't stop there. Because every time we have a, a communion service, we give you opportunity to give to the benevolent fund. As you exit... And I just want you to know, we don't report these. We don't tell you where we, who they give, we give them to, but they are going to bless and to encourage and to help members of our community, members of our family that just don't have what they need at certain times in, in their life. We just recently housed two families. You didn't know it, but your gifts to Benevolent Fund have housed two families temporarily, but nevertheless, It's done that, and your giving has also supplied needs in many other ways. We've given, we've helped people with the house payments. We've helped them with repairs to their home. We've helped them with food and clothing vouchers. We've helped them with utility payments and and whatnot, just all sorts of things. And as if that's not enough, if you were to add the volunteer labor of village members you'd have a number that it would be astonishing. You help us with so many things voluntarily, with administrative needs in our office, and our treasury office. You help us with children and youth ministries in a way that's so God-honoring. You help us with, well, with... Like, for example, the PA. I mean, look, these people give countless hours. And VCTV, how much do these people, 15 people, every Sabbath, working to, to make this go out over the air and other volunteers and all, and I shouldn't stop there, volunteers at Sunbridge, volunteers at our center and warehouse where they generate funds to, to help children go to uh, uh, have Christian education. It's a continuous demonstration a continuous demonstration of God's grace at work. It is. The activity of God's grace was seen in the early church. It was seen not just in the preaching of Peter and the apostles. It was seen not just in the, in the healing that came at their hands through Jesus Christ, but it was also seen and witnessed to in the generous giving and the freedom that it created among those who worshiped. A generosity was done. In Acts chapter 4, 34, it says, From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had a need. Isn't that neat? That's what was happening in the early church. And as it describes the sweet harmony that was going on there, an outstanding example is given of this generosity, and it happened in the life of a man by the name of... um, Barnabas. Barnabas. His generosity was an outstanding example, and it says in verse 36 and 37, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought it the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So here's this man whose name was Joseph, a Levite not even a resident of Jerusalem, but he was so moved by God's spirit, so possessed by God's generosity that he wanted to help the people that he didn't even know except they were part of the Jerusalem church. And he was given a name by the early church because of this, his, his overflowing generosity. The son of encouragement, Barnabas, the encourager. He wanted to do something good. With his possessions. He wanted to make a difference for the kingdom of God. You know, it's that spirit is a good one because someday, sooner or later, this whole thing on earth is gonna be done. Right? And why not use, like Barnabas did, why not use what we have to advance God's kingdom while we can. Barnabas decided to put his assets to work. And he became known as the encourager. We have a lot of encouragers here at Village Church. People want who want to make their possessions count for God. Unfortunately, there were others in the early church as well. They were not of quite the same spirit. They saw the attention that was garnered by Barnabas. And they noticed the praise and honor that came to him because of the gift he gave. And so they decided that they would do the same, give a part of their holdings to advance the cause of God. And it says, Acts chapter 5, verse number 1, Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. Maybe, as I think of it, we don't know, but maybe initially they intended to do just as Barnabas had done. Sell some property and give all the proceeds, the entire amount, to the church. But somewhere along the way, we don't know exactly when or how, but somewhere along the way, in their hearts, something was hatched called hypocrisy. Verse number two, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. The generosity of Barnabas was Holy Spirit-inspired. However, Ananias and Sapphira were moved by a different spirit, an unholy spirit. No one knew exactly how much they got for their property, so no one would know whether the gift they gave represented only a portion of... Of the total proceeds. And they weren't in it to give, they were in it to get. Verses 3 and 4. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. You see here from this verse, it tells us Ananias was free at liberty to sell his property and do with it what he wished. He didn't have to sell it. He didn't have to give everything that came from the proceeds that was wouldn't have been a sin to give part of it or not to do it at all but the sin came in his hypocrisy alleging that the gift that he was given giving was all that he had received and he lied he lied to the church he lied to god now what happens next is challenging some of the most challenging verses in the Bible for some people to read. Because as Peter spoke, Ananias' sin came home and he fell down dead right there. As one commentator, F.F. F. Bruce, says in his commentary on the book of Acts, it was an evident act of judgment, the judgment that begins first at the house of God. Wow. Wow. Boy, you want to get a little action in the church? Have a few healings and a few deaths. (laughs) Immediately, his body was hauled out. And when Sapphira came in a few hours later, she had a chance to tell the truth. But instead, Sapphira repeats the falsehood and admits her culpability. Culpability. And Peter raises the situation to the highest possible level. And he says, how could you conspire to test the Spirit of God? Wow. Ananias and Sapphira haven't just deceived the church. They've lied to God. You know, often the mindset I find in myself when I consider my offenses My mind thinks this way. It's not all that bad. I haven't done really anything that horrible. I naturally minimize my failings. And I say, it doesn't matter. And I don't realize how important every action is in my life. But it is important, isn't it? Every choice I make is important because every choice I make is becoming the person that I am. Isn't that what character is built from? Choices. One choice after another choice after another choice. That's really really all your life is. Just a bunch of choices that we make. And with those choices, we are slowly turning into a self. I'm a Jeff, a Jeff Kinney. My choices are becoming the creature that I am, and I'm either going to be in harmony with God and His ways and in harmony with others because of God, or I'm going to be at war with God, at war with His ways, at war with others. And that all happens just one choice at a time, one choice at a time. Peter's words to Ananias and Sapphira highlight this truth in verse number 3 of chapter 5. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You see, the church, the early church, Peter saw was being attacked. It was spiritual warfare. Satan and his angels were outraged at what was going on. They didn't like what was happening. They hated the spirit of generosity that was being shown among these early Christians. They, hate, the, the devil hated that. They were rebuked by the miraculous powers at work in the hands of the apostles. They despised this preaching of the good news in Jesus Christ that saved lives. And they hated, the evil spirits hated the spirit of generosity. And so the devil decided to infect a bit of selfishness. And he gets a couple of people to prefer self-promotion at the expense of truth and love. And he teases them that they can mix truth with lies. And it introduces Chaos into the church. It's likely because of this incident that Peter later on in life when he's writing his message to the church in general says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yeah, Peter saw the devil attacking the church. And you know, The devil is still on the attack today. In fact, he loves nothing more than attacking God's last day church. He doesn't want us to survive, he doesn't want us to thrive for sure. He's especially malicious when this church is on the rise. He loves it when we're in spiritual doldrums. He loves it when we're passé about our relationship with Him, with God. He loves it when we're not much concerned about spiritual things. He loves it. and He doesn't care much what we do then because he knows that he doesn't have to worry. But if we attempt something for God, if we break new ground for Him, and he is on the attack. Just put your hand to the kingdom. Put your heart to God's work. Expand God's kingdom. Powerfully share the good news. Embody the gospel in heart and hand and feet, ministering to the needs of people. And you'll see the devil at work, trying to stop, trying to persuade, trying to destroy Destroy your generosity. It's spiritual warfare. And stronger than any target is the target of God's people in the last days. The brother of Jesus tells us the only way to victory. James chapter 4, he says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Notice those two parts there. Submit to God and resist. You can't just resist the devil. The devil will run over you like a tank. You're no power. I'm no power. But with God, we have everything we need. In Jesus Christ, we have everything we need. When we submit to God, when we stand in His strength, just like Jesus stood in God's strength, through prayer, through fellowship, through utterly submissive submitting His will to the Father's will, to the Father's way, to the way expressed in God's Word, we become overcomers. Just like Jesus was an overcomer. No, the church wasn't perfect in the days of the apostles, and it's not perfect today. But wherever the church of God becomes possessed by the spirit of god there is a generosity that is displayed that's a witness to the world a generosity in in love and care for the needy a generosity in what we possess and in giving a generosity in relationships a generosity in so many ways and that's what god is working that's what he wants to work that's what he was doing in the early church That's what he wants to do today. My appeal to you today, would you be that church? I want to be that church. A church where God reigns in the human heart and God works miraculously by his power. Shall we be that? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your spirit that you've given to us so generously. And that spirit that you've given as a down payment to live in us, that spirit empowers and strengthens and brings the life of Jesus real in our life. And we want to say to you, Lord, today, yes. Come in again. Rule and reign in our lives that we might be for you that same kind of generous church that was evidenced in these first chapters of the book of Acts as you work in us and through us to bring honor to your kingdom, to expand your glory here on earth till you come back. That's what we want to give ourselves to, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.